Hello, and welcome to the Nightcast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brita Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 157th episode of the Nauticast titled The Lone Ranger. An analysis of A Storm of Swords, John 1, in which Jon Snow meets his new best friend, or his worst enemy, Mance Raider, who he just has a few questions for our sad boy protagonist, Jon Snow. Just to, just just one or two, just minor little things. He might clear a few things up for us, John, please. Thank you. And then John will turn every one of those around on Mance. Absolutely beautiful. And we wanted to welcome our, our special guest for this episode. We had him on before for the, the Red Wall episode I did while Jeff was away. We're so happy to have back Micah. Thanks so much for being on the Nauticast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. And it's good to, to finally do an episode with you, with you, Micah, as well, since I wasn't able to be on for the Red Wall episode. So thank you so much for coming on. It's awesome. Can't wait to do this episode with you. So as always, this episode is brought to you by our Not A Small Council, our Hand of the King Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester Timbob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Command the Kingsguard, Mark M., Sir Keith J., Master Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah the Quilt, Lion, War of the West, Harold the Golden Tooth, Master the Bainfort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James the Gym that was promised, Lord Jacob II, the Hand of the King, Lady Zena of Lyrium, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dan, Prince, Riga Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Ward, the Eastern Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugar Tits Dent, the Trogdolite Warrior, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stand, Herald of Share, Ambassador of Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives, and Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of Thades and Gentle Dems, and the Nauticast Non-Binary, Not an Army, Oliver, the Wafer T-Wow, A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Medaris of House Golgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Award, Queen of Pencils, the Eraser, and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portrait of the Realm, the Realist of the Seven Kings, Bunner Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir, Christ- Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellow, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshal Hapson, Absent, Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King and Horror of Harren Hall, Olaf, Proponent of Establishing a Feudal, Pseudo-Democratic System of Great Councils where in every count votes, Sir Tim, the Knight Who is Guided by Voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dana, Prince Rigger Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2, Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan, Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Bone Way, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Squire Matt S., Future Matt S., the one who bring balance to the kingdoms, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Garb, Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warners of the South, and the patron of free, willing bisexuals, Lady Jamisa, she who suggests that coconuts migrate, Lord Christoph of Arundel, official ice master and deliverer of the valiant, pungent reindeer, king, keeper of feisty pants, and prince consort to his ginger sweet love queen, Anna. 
Lord Sir Septon Ruthers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, Word of the Kingswood, and the Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms, Sir Kell, contractor in charge of continually extending the small council table, Lord Travis Mintet, Master of Ships, and the Third Stage Guild Navigator, Lord Anonymous the Second, Lord Tyler, the Prince that promises to wait patiently for the winds of winter, Lord D.B., Sister Winner, a former High Lady who has, of course, become a new small council member with a new title, Sister Winner, hopeful, romantic, and unrepentant shipper, Lord Monsef, and our newest member of the small council, the most metal name ever, the severed head of a Targaryen prince rotting on the council walls. Thank you to all of our small council patrons, and welcome to the severed head of, of a Targaryen prince rotting on the council walls. Thank you to all our counselors, as always, and a special welcome to the severed head of a Targaryen prince rotting on the council walls. I look forward to inhaling that rotting smell forever. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Absolutely. And our spoiler warning is we say that every episode will potentially be talked about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Devils, histories, interviews, the Windswinder sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Lady Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, a High Lords, a High Lord slash High Lady, who asks, I was listening to a Tyrion podcast recently, and you noticed how Tywin set up Tyrion with Sansa to have a claim to Winterfell, while ostensibly telling Roose that he'd get Winterfell. So my question is, if Tywin had lived, what was his plan for Winterfell? Who did he really want to have in the end? And do you think he had a plan or two to make that happen? So what do you think about that, Jeff? Later in Storm, we're going to get kind of conflicting possibilities for the North in the wake of the Red Wedding. So, you know, all else being equal, what do you think Tywin's ideal plan for the North was? So we're going to find out in later Storm chapters a couple things which are seemingly contradictory, but I think I have something of an idea of what Tywin was planning. So... We ha we know that Tywin's part of the bargain that Roose Bolton makes with Tywin Lannister in participating in the Red Wedding was the fact that Tywin tells Roose that he'll become Warden of the North and he'll legitimize his bastard son Ramsay and Ramsay will become the Lord of Winterfell and will marry Arya Stark. Um, the thing is, is that I think Tywin was always planning betrayal of, of the Boltons of the of another disposable asset. Uh, because Tywin loves to fuck over his disposable assets any way that he could possibly do that. And the way he wanted to do that in this case was that he knew, I think Lord, I think Tywin knew that Arya Stark that he was sitting north was Jane Poole, knowing that was not the, the real Arya. In doing so, what Tywin next had is that he had the actual Sansa Stark. He didn't have a fake Sansa Stark in, in hand. And he was able to, and he had her married to, and he had her married to Tyrion, as we're going to find out later in A Storm of Swords. So the idea then was that at some point, I think that Tywin would have revealed or had someone reveal that that's not actually Arya Stark. That is actually Jane Poole. And what ended up going, what's going to end up happening is that he was planning for then Tyrion to stake his claim to Winterfell using the legitimate and real Sansa Stark. So the, that's what I think was, was, was going to happen. The interesting thing that I think is that Roose Bolton seems to know this because he mentions to Jamie at Harrenhal that he knows that Sansa Stark is married to Tyrion. And it's clear from A Dance with Dragons, at least, that Roose Bolton is very aware that is not the real Arya Stark. He knows that is uh, just is an imposter. So he's working with so Roose, so I'm curious what Roose Bolton's idea about all of this was. And I and I what I wonder is that Barbara Dustin has this line in A Dance with Dragons where she theorizes that Roose Bolton also wants to become King of the North. Uh, similar to, to Rob Stark, and I wonder whether Bruce Bolton was plotting betrayal at the same time that Tywin Lannister was was plotting betrayal of, of the Starks. So 
you know, Roos does this really interesting thing in dance specifically where he ends up kind of, you can see him working the, the mechanisms to sh blame shift all of the red wedding onto the phrase. Cause he has, cause Bruce Bolton has his own disposable assets. And one of my ideas, one of my ideas is that Roos will, would have likely been like, actually, it's not my fault that everything went real bad at the Red Wedding. I, I didn't even participate in that. But however, I have Hostin Frey right here and Anies Frey right over here. These guys are the guys I could fuck over in order to uh, to kind of seize power in, in the North. So the, I, I wrote a theory a, a long time ago. I, I think the essay was called The Broken Country or something like that, in which I talked this list a bit about this this specific theory, this specific idea about what Tywin was planning and what Roose Bolton was counterplanning. Uh, potentially in the book that was and none of these 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 conspiracies reached reached or have not reached fruition so far um and i don't think they ever will because i think Bruce bolton is not long for this world but but if, if you want to read that i can try and link that in the show notes but uh, i'm curious what you all think about what tywin was planning had he lived and what maybe Bruce bolton was planning as well what do you think michael i think uh largely along the same sides as you uh yeah tywin uh probably knew that either fake Arya would be found out or that the Northern Lords would not tolerate Roos at all. And that the North was likely going to go into a conundrum again. And similar with um, Mass Raider coming south, uh, Tywin would have wanted the North to deal with itself. And then he could come in in the aftermath and be like, look, here she is, Sansa Stark. <laughs> I think that's probably right. I think it's it's interesting that uh, Roos's logic seems to be, well, I'm up here and the Lannisters aren't. And that's ultimately going to tell more than anything else that, you know, they, they'd have to launch a full scale invasion to root me out of here. And as much as the North, you know, doesn't like the Boltons and hates Ramsay, we do get a sense in dance. That there are people who would make a deal with Roos specifically and nothing would bind them to him faster than a Lannister army showing up on their doorstep. So while I think Tywin does have the trump card of an actual Stark, you know, I think the northern kind of ideology might uh, might lean them against a, a child with a Lannister father. I think I think it would have been a crapshoot. I think it could have gone either way, and I think it would have all have been about which one of them sold it. You know, unfortunately, Tywin died before he could get the chance, and I think Roose is going to as well. But it just shows that you know, for all Tywin talks about the glorious Lannister century to unfold in peace and prosperity and whatnot after the Red Wedding, it was a house of cards already, man. Like, the Lannisters, the Boltons, the Freys, none of them really trust each other. None of them were going to work long-term. Nope. I agree with that, 100%. So thank you to Sir, Lady, Jordan, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we must answer here on the Notacast podcast. You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher-level patron over at patreon.com slash Notacast A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can get show notes, free merch, bonus episodes like our recently released analysis of the movie Waltz with Bashir, access to the Nada Slack, and more. Yes, yes, indeed. And we have fun on our Patreon and also do a chapter-by-chapter -chapter analysis of George R. Martin's 1982 novel Fever Dream. We are um, we just released uh, Chapter 21 for that. So if you enjoy George R. Martin's writing, which I would assume that you do, and you have not read one of George's other books, because he has written other books besides The Song of Ice and Fire, Fever Dream is a great place to start. And we are doing a chapter-by-chapter -chapter -chapter analysis of that. And, of course, we are working on getting our way up to getting to those Theon, the Winds of Winter bonus episodes. So, again, check us out at patreon.com forward slash nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with John, he had scaled the Frostfangs with his battle buddies and then watched them all sacrifice themselves for him. But he found new 
friends in the Wildlings. Let's find out about friendship in this synopsis of A Storm of Swords, John 1. The world was gray darkness, smelling of pine and moss and cold. Pale mists rose from the black earth as the riders threaded their way through the scatter of stones and scraggly trees, down toward the welcoming fire strewn like jewels across the floor of the river valley below. There were more fires than Jon Snow could count. Hundreds of fires. Thousands. A second river of flickery lights along the banks of the icy milk water. The fingers of his sword hand opened and closed. You know, it's not the start of a Jon Snow arc and story in a book until he's flexing his fingers of his sword hand. Am I right, fellas? Am I right? I'm right. Jon and his friends make their way down a ridge silent, save for the rattle of Rattleshirt's bone armor. All the while, the eagle flies above all the people on horses and the direwolf ghost. Speaking of ghosts, he'd had quite the trip so far, so far. He mostly stayed away from the riders during the day, but he'd hang out with John at night. The problem was that Rattleshirt's dogs didn't like Ghost, and the biggest, baddest hound tried to attack Ghost. This turned out to be a very poor move, as Ghost lazily bit the dog and sent him running. Jon Snow's Garen wickered softly, but a touch and a soft word soon quieted the animal. Would that his own fears could be calmed so easily. He was all in black, the black of the Night's Watch, but the enemy rode before and behind. Wildlings, and I am with them. John Egret wore the cloak of corn half-hen. Lennel had his halberd, the big spearwife ragwile his gloves, one of the bowmen his boat his boots. Corn's helm had been won by the short, homely man called Longspear Rick, but it but it fit poorly on his narrow head, so he'd given that to Egret as well. And Rattleshirt had Corn's bones in his bag, along with the bloody head of Eben, who'd set out with John to scout the Skirling Pass. Dead, all dead but me, and I am dead to the world. Egret was behind John, Longspear, Rick, and Frum. They were his guards of a sort, according to Rattleshirt, but Egret is openly disdainful of Rattleshirt's commands. These are free folk indeed, John saw. Rattleshirt might lead them, but none of them were shy in talking back to him. For his part, the friendly man known as the Rattleshirt tells John that he knows he's false and that Mance will know as well, and then he'll kill John when Mance says so. So friendly. The first night, after killing Holcorn, they make camp. John felt cold despite sitting by a fire, but Egret comes to sit by him, telling him that Mance will take him for one of the free folk now. John has a, a question about this free folk and thing. And when I'm free, he says slowly, will I be free to go? Sure you will. She had a warm smile despite her crooked teeth. And we'll be free to kill you. It's dangerous being free. Most come to like the taste of it. She put her gloved hand on his leg just above his knee. You'll see. I will, thought John. I will see and hear and learn, and when I will, and when I have, I will carry the word back to the wall. The wildlings had taken him for an oathbreaker, but in his heart, John was still a man of the Night's Watch, doing the last duty that Corn half handed laid on him before I killed him. Okay, so besides the human heart and conflict with itself, the pressing issue that George R. Martin seems to want to explore the most in A Song of Ice and Fire is. Hey, why can't redheads in this series leave sad boy protagonists alone? Please leave them alone, redheads. Back to the present, John and company get to the bottom of the slope across a stream and then Mance Raider's outriders approach. Armed with mismatched armor and arms, they approach and John sees their leader, a blonde dude with watery eyes and a curved sky. He knows him at once. It's the Weeper and maybe like, fuck the Weeper? Rattleshirt introduces John as the as a crow come over, saying that John joined because he always knew he'd be dead otherwise. 
Rick says that John killed Corrin, him and Ghost anyways. Ah, but John killed Arell, Rattleshirt puts in. And then Ragwild, the spearwife, tells John that, the weep, that John is a warg. The weeper sizes John up, thinks he looks wolfish, and says they need to take him to Mance Raider. The party crosses the milkwater single file. Ghost gets close to John as they cross. When they're on the land again, the dogs pick up Ghost Scent and start barking and growling. Rick says the dogs don't like Ghost Scent, and John is all like, yeah, they wouldn't. He's a fucking wolf, dude. They're dogs. Did they? Did you take basic bio biology? Speaking of Ghost not being of a kind with the dogs, that's how John feels about the wildlings. No more than I am yours. But he had his duty to be mindful of. The task Corn Halfhand had laid upon him as they shared that final fire to play the part of the that final fire to play the part of, turn, of a turn cloak and find whatever it was that the wildlings had been seeking in the bleak, cold wilderness of the Frostfangs. Some power, Corn had named it to the old bear, but he had died before learning what it was or whether Mance Raider had found it with his digging. John observes all of the cook fires on the river, the wagons, the carts, and the sleds. There were tents, felted wool, people living under lean twos. Men practice for war, women fletch arrows. Arrows for my brothers, John thought. Arrows for my father's folk, for the people of Winterfell and Deepwoodmont and the last hearth. Arrows for the north. But not all was warlike. He saw women dancing as well and heard a baby crying, and a little boy ran up in front of his garren, all bundled up in fur and breathless from play. Sheep and goats wandered freely while oxen plodded along the riverbank in search of grass. The smell of roast mutton drifted from one cook fire, and at another, John saw a boar turning a boar turning on a wooden spit. At an open spot, Rattleshirt decides to make camp. Egret and Longspear Rick are to take John to Mance. They're going to kill him afterwards, though. John walks through the massive encampment, noting that it's not really one unified camp, but more like several hundred smaller camps. And that disorganization made the wildlings vulnerable to attack. They had numbers, but the Night's Watch had discipline, and in battle, discipline beat numbers nine times out of every ten, his father once told him. There was no doubting which tent was the king's. It was thrice the size of the next largest he'd seen, and he could hear wildling, he could hear music drifting from within. Like many of the lesser tents, it was made of sewn hides and with fur still on, but Mance Raider's hides were the shaggy white pelts of snow bears. The peaked roof was crowned with a huge set of antlers from one of the giant elks that had once roamed freely throughout the Seven Kingdoms and the times of the First Men. John approaches two guards outside of the tent who tell them that Ghost has to remain outside. John tells Ghost to stay, and then Rattleshirt, Egret, and Rick, and John all enter the tent. Inside, they find it hot and smoky with burning peat in all four corners and skins acting as carpets on the ground. John feels alone in his night's watch cloak, about to confront the king beyond the wall. His eyes adjust, his eyes adjust to the inside of the tent, and he sees a pretty blonde woman back off, John, by the fire, and a young man sharing a horn of mead, a pregnant woman cooking some chicken, a gray-haired, unimportant dude playing a song. Don't, don't worry about him. And what song is this guy singing? Why, I thought you'd never ask. I'm going to get my voice ready to go here. And, well, uh, thanks for the intro, Jeff. That was real sweet of you. But since I'm Mance Raider and Mance Raider is me, I'll take over from here. <clears throat> The Dornishman's wife was as fair as the sun, and her kisses were warmer than spring. But the Dornishman's blade was made of black steel, and its kiss was a terrible thing. Oh my gosh, I'm weeping. I'm weeping. That was so <laughs> like good. Like the weeper. How appropriate. I am the, weep I am the weeper. God. <laughs> 
Congratulations. Yeah, I, I, I guess. John knows this song, and now I know it too. And he finds it wild that it's being sung way up here, thousands of miles away from Dorn. As the man sings, Rattleshirt takes off his bony armor and reveals himself to be a small dude with a thin mustache, pinched cheeks, and close-set eyes. Basically, he's a fucking ugh. The Dornishman's wife would sing as she bathed in a voice that was sweet as a peach. But the Dornishman's blade had a song of its own and a bite sharp and cold as a leech. <laughs> That's just, just thrilling me in all my... All my interesting places. Next to the brazier was a short but enormous dude eating a chicken off the skewer and smiling. He had thick gold bands and wore black ring mail from a dead ranger. Next to him was a tall, lean man frowning over a map. The dude, the dude may have been hot, but he had lost his ears from frostbite or to an enemy's knife. All the same, John knows these two bros to be warriors and way more dangerous than Rattleshirt. He wonders which of these guys is Mance Raider. As he lay on the ground with the darkness around and the taste of his blood on his tongue, his brothers knelt by him and prayed him a prayer, and he smiled and he laughed and he sung. Brothers, oh brothers, my days here are done, the Dornishman's taken my life. But what does it matter, for all men must die, and I've tasted the Dornishman's wife. Aw, <laughs> oh, shucks. Fuck Ramin Jawadi. I got damn Emmett Booth. The music fades as the bald, earless man takes notice of John. He asks if he's a crow. Rattleshirt states that John is a crow who killed Orel, and he is also a warg. The bald man says that Rattleshirt was supposed to kill all the rangers, but Egrit explains that John turned his cloak and came over to the free folk after killing Korn Halfhand. This angers the bald man who says that Korn was his to kill. John takes a knee after introducing himself and calls the bald man, Your Grace. The bald man laughs hard at John for calling him a king, and the large man next to him laughs even harder and points out, Hey dude, the king is right the fuck behind you. The singer rose to his feet. I'm Mance Raider, he said as he put aside the loot. And you? A Ned Stark's bastard, the snow of Winterfell. Stunned, John stood speechless for a moment before he recovered enough to say, Ow! How could you know? Ah, that's a tale for later, said Mance Raider. How'd you like the song, lad? Well, well enough. I, I'd heard it before. But what does it matter? For all men must die, the king beyond the wall said lightly. And I've tasted the Dornishman's wife. Tell me, does my lord of bones speak truly? Did you slay my old friend the half-hand? John admits that he did. But to himself, he thinks that it was Corrin's doing more than his, and really Ghost's doing more than both either his or Corrin's. In response, Mance has some of his own thoughts. Shadow Tower will never again seem as fearsome, the king said with sadness in his voice. Corrin was my enemy, but also my brother once. So, shall I thank you for killing him, Jon Snow, or curse you? He gave Jon a mocking smile. The king beyond the wall looked nothing like a king, nor even much of a wildling. He was a middling height, slender, sharp-faced with shrewd brown eyes and long brown hair that had mostly gone to gray. There was no crown on his head, no gold rings on his arms, no jewels at his throat, not even a gleam of silver. He wore wool and leather, and his only garment of note was his ragged black wool cloak, its long tears patched with faded red silk. You ought to thank me for killing your enemy, John said finally. 
and curse me for killing your friend. Ah! Boomed the white-bearded man. Well answered. Agreed. Mance Raider beckoned John closer. When John is close to Mance, the king introduces the bald man as Stir, Magna of Then. The big dude is Tormund, and the woman is, oh, no, 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 Mance. Tormund interrupts. Give John all, give John all of Tormund's titles. Mance Raider laughed. As you wish. Jon Snow, before you stands Tormund Giantsbane, tall talker, hornblower, and breaker of ice. And here also Tormund Thunderfist. Husband to bears, the mead king of Ruddy Hall, speaker to gods, and father of hosts. Ha! That sounds more like me, said Tormund. Well met, Jon Snow. I am fond of wargs, as it happens, though. Not of stocks, though. Mance goes on to introduce Dalla, saying she's a queen as she's pregnant with Mance's son. Queen of sorts, in other words. The beautiful woman is Val, and her boyfriend next to her is Jarl. Anyways, that's all of Mance's court of a sort. What was John doing up here in the milkwater, Mance asks. Before John can answer, Mance turns back to Rattleshirt and asks how many there were. Five. Three dead, one disappeared up the mountain, and John here. Mance turns back to John and asks if there was only five rangers in total. Well, there were four and corn, but he was worth twenty coming men. Mance smiles and then asks how John came to join up with the rangers from the Shadow Tower. Ah, well, Elsie Marmont sent John to Corn for some seasoning via a ranging, John Wise. Angrily, Stir asks why the crow would range up the Skirling Pass. Well, because the villages were abandoned, and the wildlings had all vanished. Vanished, I, said Mance Raider, and not just the free folk. Who told you where we were, Jon Snow? Tormund sword. Ha! It were a craster or I'm a blustered, blushing maid. I told you, Mance, that creature needed to be shorter by a head. The king gave the older man an irritated look. Tormund, someday try thinking before you speak. I know it was craster. I asked John to see if he would tell it true. Ha! Tormund spat. Well, I stepped in that. Tormund grinned at John. See, lad, that's why he's a king and I'm not. I can out-drink, out-fight... And outsing him, and me member is thrice the size of his. But Mance has cunning. He was raised by a crow, you know, and the crow's a tricksy bird. But now that Tormund keeps fucking up Mance's interrogation, Mance wants some time alone to talk with John. Insulted, Tormund asks if he should go too. Yeah, he especially should go. Everyone leaves except for Mance and Dalla. Mance directs John to sit and asks if John is hungry. He is, your grace. Your grace. The king smiled. It's not a style one often hears from the lips of free folk. I'm Mance to most. The Mance to some. Will you take a horn of mead? Gladly, said John. Mance pours himself a drink, and Dalla cuts a hen apart for John to eat, which John does as he's a hungry, sad boy. As he eats, Mance tells John that he was a crow for a long time, so he knows how tricksy the crow is. So please, John, don't play tricksy with Mance. Uh, as you say, your, your manse? The king laughed. Your manse? Why not? I promised you a tale before of how I knew you. Have you puzzled it out yet? Was it Rattleshirt who told? No. They don't have trained ravens north of the wall. Mance had seen John twice, though. John starts to wonder, and then it dawns on him that Mance came to Winterfell when he was a brother of the Night's Watch. Mance gives John a gold star, telling him how he came as one of old Lord, old Lord Commander of Corgal's escorts back in the day. It had snowed the night before, and John and Rob were boys and had built a giant snow mountain. 
on one of the castle gates to push on an unsuspecting person. Suddenly, John remembers Mance as a young brother. Mance had sworn not to tell, a vow Mance had kept. One of the ones he kept anyways. So what was the other time that Mance saw John? When King Robert came to Winterfell to make your father hand, the king beyond the wall said lightly. John's eyes widened in disbelief. That, that can't be so. It was. When your father learned the king was coming, he sent word to his brother Benjamin on the wall so he might come down for the feast. There is more commerce between the Black Brothers and the Free Folk than you know, and soon enough word came to my ears as well. It was too choice a chance to resist. Your uncle did not know me by sight, so I had no fear from that quarter, and I did not think your father was like to remember a young crow he met briefly years before. I wanted to see this Robert with my own eyes, king to king, get the measure of your Uncle Benjamin as well. He was first ranger by then, and the bane of all my people. So I saddled my fleetest horse and rode. Mm. Now, wait a minute, John says. What about the wall? Well, a wall can stop an army, but not a man, especially one armed with a lute, a bag of silver, and a love for singing. And Mance made good time by himself, unlike Robert and Cersei. Besides, Mance had hung out with the singers and harpers at the back of the Winterfell Hall. And finally, Mance was under guest right, having eaten the meat and drank the meat of Lord Eddard. So, he was safe. John realizes that this story sounds awfully familiar, and he says as much. Bail the bard, said John, remembering the tale that Egret had told him in the Frostfangs the night he'd almost killed her. Would that I were. I will not deny that Bail's exploit inspired mine own. But I did not steal either of your sisters that I recall. Bale wrote his own songs and lived them. I only sing the songs that better men have made. More mead. <laughs> John, probably realizing the man's was trying to get him drunk enough to say some dumb shit, declines. He starts to say if Mance had been discovered, he would have been killed. But Mance disagrees. Your father would have had my head off. The king gave a shrug. Though, once I had eaten at his board, I was protected by guest right. The laws of hospitality are as old as the first men, and sacred as a heart tree. He gestured at the board between them, the broken bread and chicken bones. Here you are the guest, and safe from harm at my hands. This night, at least. So tell me truly, Jon Snow, are you a craven who turned your cloak from fear? Or is there another reason that brings it to my tent? Guest right or no, Jon Snow knew he walked some rotten ice here. One false step, and he might have plunged through into water cold enough to stop his heart. Way everywhere before you speak it, he told himself. He took a long draft of mead to buy time for his answer. When he set the horn aside, he said, Tell me why you turned your cloak, and I'll tell you why I turned mine. Moving beyond the whole thing about guestright being sacred very, very fast, John guesses right that Mance likes the sound of his own voice. Mance says John has probably heard the stories of his desertion. Sure, Mance deserved for a crown or a woman or because he had the wildling blood. Well, wildling blood, fuck that noise. That's the same blood as the blood of the first men. And he has no crown, and that woman is someone he met on the way back from Winterfell. Guess again, John. John wonders if maybe it's wildling music that got to Mance. But while that's closer, that ain't it. Mance turned his cloak for a cloak. You'll be surprised to discover that Jon Snow is confused here. Whenever is Jon Snow confused in this story? Never, as far as I know. He asks what that means, and Mance, as you'll be surprised to discover, decides to tell Jon in full what that means. The black wool cloak of a sworn brother of the Night's Watch, said the King Bay on the wall. 
One day on a ranging, we brought down a fine big elk. We were skinning it when the smell of blood drew a shadow cat out of its lair. I drove it off, but not before it shredded my cloak to ribbons. Do you see? Here, here, and here? He chuckled. Shredded my arm and back as well. I bled worse than the elk. My brothers feared I might die before they got me back to Mr. Mullen at the Shadow Tower, so they carried me to a wildling village, where we knew an old wise woman did some healing. She was dead, as it happened, but her daughter saw to me. Cleaned my wounds, sewed me up, fed me porridge and potions till I was strong enough to ride again. She sewed up the rents in my cloak as well, some scarlet silk from a shy that her grandmother had pulled from the wreck of a cog washed up on the frozen shore. It's the greatest treasure she had, and her gift to me. He swept the cloak back over his shoulders. But at the Shadow Tower, I was given a new wool cloak from stores, black and black, trimmed with black to go with my black bleaches and black boots, my black doublet and black mail. The new cloak had no frays, nor rips, nor tears, and most of all, no red. The men of the Night's Watch dressed in black, Sir Dennis Malister reminded me sternly, as if I'd forgotten. My old cloak was fit for burning now, he said. He left the next morning. For a place where a kiss was not a crime, and a man could wear any cloak he chose. He closed the clasp and sat back down again. And you, Jon Snow. Now unable to ask more questions to avoid more questions, John decides that there's only one thing that might convince Mance that he was truly turned. He says that Mance was there at King Robert's feast, right? He was. John asks if Mance saw where all the important people were seated. Mance remembers. And did you see where I was seated, Mance? John leaned forward. Did you see where they put the bastard? Mance Raider looked at John's face for a long moment. I think we'd best find you a new cloak, the king said, holding out his hand. Oh, man, it's so great when we get to do a synopsis together, sir, because that was amazing. <laughs> Hell yeah. But that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, John 1. I mean, I usually tr say something sarcastic here about this chapter sucking or whatnot, but I, I can't even, like, manage that for this chapter because this is not only a great chapter, it feels like a fresh start for Jon Snow. And I love this chapter. And I'm sure you boys are going to disagree with me, right? Absolutely. It sucks. See, I got, of course. <laughs> I got my sarcasm out of the way quickly. I'll never forget the first time I read the end of John's story in Clash of Kings in the previous book. It was such a thrill at the end there when John turned his cloak and learned that Mance was marching on the wall. It was a perfect reversal of the end of his story in book one, when it was the Watch who was marching north of the wall. In both cases, you can just hear the drum beats in your head as you read, pulsing in time with your heartbeat. So I was pretty excited heading into John's Storm of Swords chapters for the first time, and they lived up to that promise, and then some. This is an epic storyline, high fantasy at its best, touching on everything from war to espionage to tragic romance. John gets way more chapters in this book than the previous ones, and every extra page is earned. He fully inhabits the protagonist role now, and you can feel George's excitement in this chapter especially. John 1 is just so big. Not only the wildling camp itself, but the larger-than-life personalities John meets and the complexity of his conversations with them, especially Mance Raider, who, as you can tell, is one of my favorite characters, and this is probably <laughs> my, my favorite character intro in the series. This chapter is so ambitious, but George hits every note perfectly. Yeah, so yeah, best John chapter so far, and I don't think it's even close. What do you think, Micah? Oh, absolutely, it's not even close. I, uh, 
I didn't really get interested into John while reading A Song of Ice and Fire after the bad show, of course, uh, until the end of A Clash of Kings. But it was this first chapter where that everything came to light what John's story was about and piloted it in this direction that's so deep and thrilling and just everything I want in my fantasy. Uh, we're taken into unknown territory and first being in John's for the first time really being confronted with realization that people have very understandable reasons for turning cloak as he learns about Mance Raider. And as his journey continues, he's going to learn more about who the free folk are and uh, each individual people. Like he finds out they're not all bad in this book. They're not all good in this book. There's some bad ones in there. I agree. I mean, whenever I read a Song of Ice and Fire chapters for this podcast, I try to think of where I was and what I was thinking when I first read the books and compare it to how I'm feeling now and the new observations I might have. What's interesting about A Storm of Swords, John 1, is that my feelings and thoughts from 2012 and 2021, 2012, of course, being the year that I first read the books, and 2021, of course, being the year of our Lord right now. I find myself just as excited now to retackle John's story for Knack as it was to first read it back in 2012. Because this is a exciting first chapter in the story. Mance Raider has been built up as a larger-than-life character way before Stannis was built up that way. Our first mention of Mance Raider came in A Game of Thrones Catlin 1, which is, of course, Chapter 3 of A Game of Thrones, where Ned says that one day he might have to call the banners and deal with this king beyond the wall, Mance Raider. And that legend only grew in A Clash of Kings as the Night's Watch headed north, finding deserted villages, learning that Mance had gathered the wildlings together up in the Frost Fangs. And then Corn Halfhand was there to further build the man up, saying that Mance was the best and worst of the Night's Watch. And now we finally meet him, and he both subverts our expectations and yet somehow also exceeds them too. Sometimes it's hard to remember that John is even in the last third part of this chapter until you get to the very end. But we do have to be reintroduced to John, his stakes, and his story, at least in the first third or so of this, of this chapter. Especially because we've been south of the wall for a handful of chapters now. So George takes his time setting the mood back here in the far north. We're shifting from the lush imagery of Sansa 1, all those flowers and Terrell green, to the blacks and whites and grays of the north. A stark color palette, you could say. John rides with his black cloak and white wolf into what George describes in the opening line of this chapter as a world of gray darkness, pale mists rising from the black earth. The only color comes from the wildling fires below, like jewels on dark fabric. It's grim, it's bleak, but it's also exhilarating, like an ice-cold breeze that refreshes you even as it chills you to the bone. You can imagine like Led Zeppelin playing in the background. While I was reading this chapter, I had, I had no quarter by Led Zeppelin blasting because it fits that just that frosty kind of cinematic atmosphere of this chapter. It signifies a shift in the scope of John's story. In book one, he had a coming-of-age arc focused on the single setting of Castle Black. In book two, he went on the road, but his chapters were still pretty small scale, especially towards the end with Corrin Halfhand, very effectively so. Now things open up for him, wide as the horizon. It reflects the sheer size of the wildling host, but also the urgency of the issues they represent, and the consequences if things go wrong. There are so many lives at stake. It also heralds the changing stakes for John himself. For once, he has no father figures, not even a distant, disappointing one. He killed his last mentor. Now he has no one to tell him what to do. 
More importantly, John has no one to tell him who he is now. He will have to remake himself. I think it's such a, a great point about John losing his father figures. You got Ned and Benjamin, Elsie Mormont, Cornhaffen, but all these people are gone now, either dead or about to die or in terms of Mormont or missing, maybe dead in the, in the case of Benjamin. So much of John's internal character dynamic is in the Storm of Swords and, his, and A Dance with Dragons is centered around John trying to figure out how his dads would deal with the situation. But it's such a teen boy thing to go through the motions of wondering how his mentors would figure out a solution to a problem. But what Storm demonstrates for John is that there are no easy answers. Corn Halfhand's mantra is just that, a mantra. What John has to do in A Storm of Swords is go behind mantras and simple words and phrases. He has to go behind beyond easy vows and easy moral choices. It's some of the best storytelling in A Song of Ice and Fire because of how difficult it is for John. How far is John willing to go? What will he do? And amidst all of these questions, what is John's identity as he is progressing through this current life crisis that he's found himself, this present life crisis that John finds himself in? Because like most coming-of-age stories, these questions have to be answered without mom or dad around. And similar to Sansa in A Game of Thrones, A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords, and you brought this up so well, last week we were talking about us, uh, two weeks ago we were talking about Sansa Stark and her first chapter in A Storm of Swords. John has to live all of these conflicts out inside of his head as a spoken word in the wrong ear is a potential death sentence for John. That's very true. Everything is on the razor's edge. Every move he makes, he has to evaluate. There's no room for error. George frames his transformation as a descent into the underworld. That's kind of where all the imagery is pointing here. John is riding down into a dark valley, led by a man wearing bone armor. Rattleshirt has Corrin's bones in a bag. Corrin's weapons have been claimed by the other wildlings. It's as if the dead man is riding with them. Everyone who rode with John was killed, as far as we know. And as he thinks about it, he is dead to the world. The man I was, the man of the Night's Watch, he died with Corrin Halfhand. The act of killing Corrin was metaphorical suicide for John, because the man John thought he was would never dream of doing that, nor of riding alongside the wildlings afterward. So naturally, the wildling camp becomes the domain of death for him, representing his guilt and his confusion about his identity. The opening chapters of A Storm of Swords are all about rebirth. Jamie spat out of his cell onto the river, Tyrion leaving his sick room after the battle to confront his father. Davos on his rock, choosing to live, no matter how painful it is for him. For John, rebirth in Storm of Swords is specifically associated with freedom. All the wonder and terror of deciding who you are and what that means. He watches snowflakes melt in the flames as the wildlings camp. It's, it's a metaphor for his life as Jon Snow going through a crucible. And the prospect chills him despite the fire's warmth. The wildlings bring this struggle out of him. We see that right away in this chapter. John calls them free folk indeed, when he sees how Rattleshirt's followers don't follow his orders when they don't want to. The only one they all listen to is Mance. So all Rattleshirt can do is threaten that Mance will know John for a liar and have him killed. In this, it was in this part of the series to where minor characters started to be pointed out to me, and I started to mm. follow them religiously, as I do. You all know my brand. And as far as minor <laughs> characters go, Rattleshirt follows the traditional role they play to a T. He calls himself the Lord of Bones. He is the dark protagonist of his own story. But in truth, he has no power and can only follow along the purposes of others. 
Both times we ever see Rauscher here and in dance are for the purpose of bringing Jon Snow directly to Mance. Even his own followers ditch him as soon as a better opportunity arises, as we see here with Egret, Longspirit, and Ragwell. As I said back when Rattleshire was introduced, I think, you know, petty assholes like this are a universal constant, no matter where you come from, no matter what your, your culture or ideology is. And so, yep. yeah, all Rattleshire, Rattleshire can do is threats. Ah, oh, Mance is going to get you. Mance will kill you. Yeah. <laughs> we don't even know his name. His... Exactly. He's just Rattleshire. He's, He's just, just Rattleshire. And Egret uh, argues against him. Egret says otherwise to John. No, Mance will accept you because, John, you're not the first crow to cross over. You all want to fly free, she says, keeping with the bird imagery. But freedom cuts both ways up here. John asks whether he'll be free to go, as well as stay. How far does freedom extend? Does he have to serve Mance? No, says Egret, but they'll be free to kill him if he doesn't. It's a quick <laughs> exchange that summarizes a great deal about how the forever war between Watch and Wildlings has eroded the possibilities of freedom. The centuries of grievances have built up into mistrust, a border as strong as the wall itself. So in order to get south, the wildlings have bound themselves to Mance Raider, as with previous kings beyond the wall. They have to subordinate freedom to that cause, and they have to limit John's freedom because if he turns out to be a spy, he's a danger to that cause. We'll see this dynamic play out through the next few John chapters, specifically as a tragic romance between him and Egret. That's not the focus of this chapter, though George hints at it when Egret fondles John's knee a little bit when she's talking about the taste of freedom. Very subtle. The personal has always been political for Jon Snow, whose existence is an affront to the power structures around him, even more than he knows. Egret made that link for him with the Bale the Bard story, which is both a romance and an espionage story, just like Jon's story in this book. And one of the primary pleasures of Jon's storm storyline is how many genres are blended skillfully together. You got the spy story, the war story, star-crossed lovers, mythological imagery, even a little bit of hint of the Western in there, hence the title of this episode, The Lone Ranger. There's something about that John in this kind of no man's land learning to live with this indigenous people. There's, there's, there's a hint of like old school Westerns in there. Mm-hmm. Most of this chapter, though, is about the espionage angle. John is an undercover agent trying to learn more about the wildlings than they do about him. And he's pretty good at it, to give him credit. That question to Egret about whether he'll be free to go is a solid way of establishing the borders of his new identity. Ghost, on the other hand, refuses to play nice, lashing out violently at the wildling's dogs. He's John's id, refusing to assimilate, expressing what his more rational self isn't allowing him to express right now. Just like Danny's chained dragons in A Dance with Dragons. John's direwolf is his stark self. Of course, that's why it's on the banner. And yet, John's credentials as a warg are essential to him passing as a wildling. Ghost helped him kill Corrin Halfam. The wildlings riding with him spread that legend. The Weeper lets him pass because he has a wolfish cast to him. Tormund says he's not fond of Starks, but hey, he's fond of wargs. John's identity struggle is more tormented than ever before. Even his pet represents the two irreconcilable parts of himself. He can't just be himself even with his dog. The wildling host is as much a paradox as John himself. A camp that is actually a hundred camps, making it strong and weak simultaneously. The sheer size of it is staggering, as John thinks the camp goes on forever. The obvious comparison is to Renly's camp in The Reach back in Book 2, that also was a huge group of people, seemed to go on forever. But that was an army. This, as John realized earlier back in Book 2, is a whole people come together, a microcosm of humanity. 
So on one hand, he sees spears, staffs, arrows, the instruments of war, and John knows who they're intended for, the people he grew up with. This frames the wildling host as an existential threat, in line with what the watch leadership has said about the wildlings. It raises the stakes for John's mission. That's what he's trying to prevent. But on the other hand, John also sees people dancing, cooking, raising their kids. And hey, those kids cry like any other kids. They laugh like any other kids. John is seeing for himself what Corin told him. The wildlings are people like any other people. It's inhumane to see them otherwise. That, of course, doesn't just erase all the complications John is dealing with. If anything, it heightens them. He can still tell that the wildlings lack of discipline could doom them if the Night's Watch were to attack. But is that something he even wants to happen? Now that he realizes how many non-combatants, how many children, would be in the firing line? George notes all the farm animals roaming free, and Tormund and Egret will later argue that the wildling freedom represents the state of nature, that the kings with their steel and their walls and their rules have unnaturally perverted mankind. So how can John be true to everyone around him, let alone himself? As Jamie said, it's too much. Your oaths, your responsibilities, they're going to overwhelm you in the end. That is the Jon Snow story in A Storm of Swords, and especially in A Dance of Dragons, because they end up do overwhelming him ultimately. Um, so to, to kind of take a look, another like take a look at this this wildling camp and what maybe George was inspired by. I was thinking historically, as I sometimes do in this podcast. I'm, I'm I apologize to everyone in advance, and I was thinking that these this wildling camp and the wildlings themselves are maybe George's fantasy take on the so called barbarian invasions of the Roman Empire. Now, uh, uh, that term barbarian invasions is a bit of a historical misnomer and that these invasions were not hundreds of thousands of soldiers flowing over a border to conquer lands and territory. Instead, what would normally happen in a lot of these events, a lot of these crossings of, of some of the boundary lines of the Roman Empire is that you would have whole groups of people crossing border. And so I'm talking about tribes and people groups. So we're talking about warriors and chieftains, but also families, women and children all coming across. And something I'm going to be talking a lot about with regards to the wildlings is how they resemble the historical Gothic peoples who came into contact with the Roman Empire starting towards the end of the 3rd century CE. To help set the stage a bit about why I think the Goths are a historical inspiration for the wildlings, I'm going to fast forward the story of the Goths to the 4th century when the Huns begin moving into Eastern Europe forcing mass migration of the Goths into Roman territory under the leadership of a guy named Alaric I. Now, Alaric, if you guys have read Fire and Blood, Volume 1 should be a name that you should recognize. Well, first, because Fire and Blood, you should read that if you've not. But also because it is a name that George has one of the Stark lords being given, Lord Alaric Stark, who was the Lord of Winterfell when Queen Alysanne visited Winterfell. So back to the history, the term Goth... I think sometimes people are like, this is a distinct ethnic group, but it does not actually represent a distinct ethnic group, especially by the fourth century. What we're talking about is an amalgamation of different people groups who decided that they were gods because many, many people and tribes joined the Goth, the Gothic migration into Roman territory, especially across the Danube. And it was a full migration of an entire people group into Roman territory rather than an army. Of course, they had soldiers in the, in the midst as well. The parallels for the wildlings in A Storm of Swords are, are fairly clear here, with the wildlings comprising multiple clans and groups banding together because of the existential threat of the others coming down on them. But I think those historical inspirations are only there to color George R. R. Martin's storytelling. 
because the bigger part of this chapter is the scenes of warriors and children fleshing arrows and also of women cooking meat and other people dancing. It's becoming hard for John to see the wildlings as the simple barbarians that he had grown up to believe them to be, to see these people as just a war band coming to conquer the Seven Kingdoms. Like you were saying, Emmett, there's a complexity to the wildlings. They are threats to the north, making arrows for the Night's Watch and for his father's people. And yet they're, they're human, too. And looming in the background is the fact that the wildlings have only banded together because there's a threat greater than the old wars. Doesn't that complicate everything further? But to gather such a large camp together, the wildlings need someone to do the job. Their very own, I don't know, like Alaric, so to speak. Before we finally meet Mance Raider, George ensures to remind us that the popular raiders that most of the Night's Watch know about don't actually fall into the good guy spectrum that many of these new, newer characters are going to fall into. A popular trope to use in establishing if a person is bad, as everyone knows, is to have them kick a dog. And of course, we get Harma Dog's head is mentioned <laughs> in this chapter and well established as a terrible person. She kills dogs every fortnight. And of course, just before John enters the encampment, officially he's met by Outriders, led by someone called the Weeper, who comes in with red, roomy eyes, riding a horse and wielding a scythe, a literal personification of death amongst the camp of, the camp of free folks. And we'll see this personification come in full swing and dance when the rangers turn up eyeless in his wake, and he waits just across the bridge of skulls. Someone like the Weeper, who is my favorite minor antagonist in the series, is a perfect mini-boss for John when he has to ultimately face the others. He first has to come across this weirdo who wields a scythe. I think it's interesting, yeah, you call him a, a mini-boss before the others, and you also get that position for him with Mance in this chapter, because you see the Weeper, you hear about him as a hardened raider, and then you learn, oh, he knuckles under to Mance Raider. All these people who are, are vicious, I mean, Rattleshirt's not that good at it, but, you know, he thinks of himself <laughs> as a warrior. All these people knuckle under to Mance, so what must Mance be like? Just as Tyrion's first chapter in this book built up to Tywin, and Sansa's first chapter built up to Olenna, John 1 builds up to introducing Mance Raider. King Beyond the Wall. And as Jeff was saying, we've been hearing about this guy from the beginning of the story. Ned brings him up and Catelyn 1 is that looming threat that needs to be dealt with. And then he rides south, of course, and John became our POV on the wall. We heard about empty villages, man scattering everyone up in the mountains, searching for some power to break his way through the wall. Along the way, we learned a little about the man himself, particularly from his old friend Corn Halfhand. But I think the most revealing statement about Mance so far came in a brand chapter, actually, back in book one from Osha. She said, Mance thinks he'll fight the brave, sweet, stubborn man, like the White Walkers were no more than rangers. But what does he know? He can call himself King Bay on the Wall all he likes, but he's still just another old black crow who flew down from the Shadow Tower. He's never tasted winter. I was born up there, child, like my mother and her mother before her and her mother before her, born of the free folk. We remember. So Mance is a crow come over, who thinks he can save his people, both of them. He's a messiah figure born from two worlds. And that's, that's quite a story, right? I mean, you can see why George had this guy in mind from the start, even showing up in the pitch letter. He's an icon, a legend. He's the whole reason this gigantic host even exists. Politically, I think he's the most worthy leader in the series, except maybe Beric Dondarrion, and they have a lot in common. Both gathered together coalitions of the small folk, people ignored and forgotten by those playing the Game of Thrones in order to fight back. 
And yet Osha tells us that Mance is basically a fraud. His whole identity is manufactured, an image he spins as much as the Tyrells. So even the most genuine leader, here in the cradle of authenticity where people are free to forge their own identity, even he is putting on an act. What John is beginning to realize is that identity is a performance. The self is something you create. The collective self, aka culture, is built around rituals, often public rituals, external statements of this is who we are. Mance is binding his people to an image he's making up as he goes along. Even his name is part of the act. He calls himself Mance Raider, which translates to Home Invader. Just in case you worry <laughs> that I don't have Raider credentials, guys, I call myself Home Invader. He needs to be seen that way. He needs to be seen as glorious, the ideal wildling warlord, because as Osha pointed out, he has to overcome his background as a Night's Watchman, as a crow. What makes Mance such a fascinating character, I think, as well as a supreme badass, is that he knows at a bone-deep level that all the world is a stage. He's a self-conscious performer, pointing out the puppet strings even as he makes use of them. He's, he's like a, a literary critic embedded in the story who knows all the tropes and can kind of make fun of them and make use of them. I think that's what makes him interesting. I can see why you like him so much. I, I can definitely <laughs> see that given your, given your media cultural criticism that you do so well online. And I think, uh, that's Brute's, I honestly I think that's a brilliant point. Something I hadn't seen previously because the way you're putting it now makes me realize why Mance Raider seems so over the top as a wildling, Mance Raider, even the name itself. It's, it's, it's so much so that there are times in reading a Storm of Swords that you kind of forget that Mance was a Night's Watchman until he, reminds us, the reader, multiple times. Yes, I know these guys from Eastwatch. Yes, I know these guys from the Shadow Tower. As I'm aware of who all these people are, but it's Mance reminding us. When we're in the story itself, we get the sense and feeling that Mance Raider is the ultimate wildling. Because Mance is overcompensating for the fact that he was once a crow, and now he has to play up his wildling nature. So we have him playing music, and as we'll talk about later, loving wildling music especially. The color of the, colors of the cloak, which again, we'll talk about, is a defiance of the Night's Watch black cloak. He is personally brave, facing off against the other chieftains and winning them over to his side one by one in single combat. And he's inspired by the legendary wildling Bale the Bard coming to Winterfell, showing his reckless fearlessness, which is how the wildlings typically fight, as we're going to find out at the Battle of the Wall. And just so the wildlings truly know he's one of them, he's got a queen of sorts, that he has had very much sex with, and it felt so good. The thing is that we instinctively know posers, right? Does Mance come across as a poser to anyone? I mean, maybe, but but not to me. What I wonder is whether a lot of that comes from the fact that Mance just doesn't take himself all that seriously. Or maybe that's the wrong way to put it. I think he does take himself seriously, but he underplays his own heroic legendary deeds and exploits. And we'll talk about this line later, but I love the line that Bale wrote his own songs and lived them. I only sing the songs that better men have made. Songs, man. Mance does songs. And wouldn't you know it, but it's through song and story that we meet the man in the flesh for the first time. Yep. Great points as always. And of course, with with most of the chieftains, we see that Mance is not the only one who spins his reputation around himself. This very chapter begins with Rattleshirt. The man who calls himself Lord of Bones. He'll boil, you, he'll boil yours if he doesn't like you. <laughs> Yet beneath him is just a small man with little to no respect. And then you have the Weeper who makes himself look like death. What an edgelord. Harm a dog's head who just goes out of her way to kill dogs. 
all of these all of these people make themselves appear more than they are. Even Torment, he has twenty titles, and later on in Dance, we'll see behind his walls when he comes back after having to watch his own son die twice in the haunted forest. Everyone has their own little act they're putting on, which is. I don't think it undercuts their belief in wilding authenticity and freedom. It just says there's no, you know, there's no real authenticity. Everything you do is a, a decision to be that way. And, you know, I think John has to learn how to kind of respect people from different backgrounds on that basis and not assume there's just the normal way to be and the abnormal way to be. He's just kind of getting past that. And Mance helps him along the way. Before we even see Mance, we hear him. He's not giving orders. He's not giving a speech. He's singing a song. Mance is a great warrior, but that's not the core of his appeal. He's a cunning politician who knows how to weaponize narrative. What's he singing about here? The Dornishman's Wife. What's that song about? Romance itself. The appeal of the songs. The hero of the song duels a jealous husband and dies on his blade. But he calls to his brothers, like his brothers of the Night's Watch, that it matters not, for we are all mortal. Everyone has to die, no matter what choices we make. So maybe what matters most is squeezing as much joy out of our lifespan as possible. Life and death coexist in the song. The wife's kisses contrasted with the terrible steel kiss of her husband's blade, which has its own song, that of war. George even throws a peach into the song, just in case you weren't already thinking about Renly's peach and what he said to Stannis down at Storm's End. A man should never refuse to taste a peach. He may never get the chance again. Life is short, Stannis. Remember what the Starks say? Winter is coming. And I think that's Mance's attitude as well. I've tasted the Dornishman's wife. I've had sex. I've known love. I've delighted in desire, in the texture of being a person who hasn't died yet. That's really what Mance believes in. That's what he's fighting for, as he'll make clear to John. And it's helped gather so many different people around him. And we get to meet those people here. Mm. Every every time George introduces a new major or secondary character, uh, he puts with them a group of small, a small circle of minor characters, which, of course, I like to analyze. It adds flavors of details of not just who those singular characters are, but they always add on to the main character. A prime example of this can be seen in a parallel chapter, the one before this. In Sansa 1, when she met Marjorie Olenna, she also saw Alice, Grace, Alice Graceford, Alice and Bulwer, Butterbumps, and Meredith Crane. George introduces these new players around the same time, while also giving each of them a surrounding cast to play off of. And those secondary characters are critical to making the introduction of Mance work, as George pulls off this just brilliant misdirection. So when John walks into the tent, it takes his eyes a moment to focus, representing the blindfold of his old worldview coming off. If this introduction to the Loudland camp is, as I was saying, John's descent into the underworld, and he's reached an innermost darkness of sort, this cave where he's prepared to meet Hades, the god of the dead. Mance, it turns out, though, isn't like that. He's a trickster god, like Loki. Rattleshirt takes off his bone helm, as Mance sings. Beneath, as Micah was saying, it's just an ordinary face. Capturing this shift from fantastic imagery to mundane realities. It's time to unmask. George plays with our expectations to show us how Mance does the same thing. John comes in with certain ideas about how the Wildling King will look. At first, the author fulfills those expectations. John sees a tall man, described as straight as a spear, all long, wiry muscle, as he frowns over a mat. John also sees a shorter, wider man with gold rings on his arms, devouring roast chicken as the grease runs into his big, bushy beard. John assumes one of them is Mance Raider. 
And we, as a first-time reader, we probably do as well. Who's going to look at the singer? That guy's usually a servant of kings. I'm sure he's just a secondary character. Hmm. The first guy, the tall guy, Stir, he fits the image of a fearsome warrior. No indulgences, focused on the goal. I'm so focused, I don't even have time to have ears anymore. I'm just focused on what I'm doing. The second guy, Tormund, he fits the image of a more lighthearted Dungeons and Dragons type wildling. He's all indulgences. They could be Ares and Dionysus, fitting the Greek imagery of this chapter, with Dalla playing Hestia and tending to the fire. But neither of these men are the true king. Mance blends these archetypes. He's both a fearsome warrior and the life of the party. Stir and Tormund represent the opposite poles of humanity. Like John, like Mance, we all struggle to find ourselves in between them. In the process, we have to let go of stereotypes, or at least recognize that no individual is going to perfectly fit those stereotypes. This matters a great deal because our perception of strangers informs our politics. John's assumption that Mance must look the part of a mighty warrior goes hand in hand with his assumption that Mance is called your grace, because that's how kings work. That's how power works. Well, what if the truth challenges our prejudices and we have to rethink how we look at the world? It's the same trick uh, George Lucas pulled with Yoda when Luke shows up on Luke Skywalker shows up on the planet of Dagobah looking for Yoda, the warrior who trained his mentor. He thinks he's going to find a big, strapping, tall man, and then he meets this tiny, little, diminutive green alien and can't believe at first, oh, that's Yoda, and that just changes your mind. Oh, I, I've been misunderstanding what it means to be that guy, and John is going through the same thing here. Absolutely, and what's interesting about this whole dynamic is that it shows that despite losing his father figures. John still has to grow. He has to learn a lot before he's a fully realized character, or rather a fully realized mature character. Back in his very first chapter, Jon Snow met his first king at the Winterfell Feast when Robert and his party showed up. There, Jon had expected Robert to look the part of the king. But what did Jon find back in the day? Remember back to Jon's first chapter. The king was a great disappointment to Jon. His father had talked of him often, the peerless Robert Baratheon, demon of the triad, and the fiercest warrior of the realm, the giant among princes. John saw only a fat man, a red-faced un red under his beard, sweating through his silks. He walked like a man half in his cups. So Robert in appearance was a disappointment to John. But how was a king supposed to look like? Well, like my doppelganger, Jamie Lannister, of course. Sir Jamie Lannister was twin to Queen Cersei, tall and golden with flashing green eyes and a smile that cut like a knife. He wore crimson silk high, black boots, a black satin cloak. On the breast of his tunic, the lion of his house was embroidered in gold red, roaring its defiance. They called him the Lion of Lannister to his face and whispered Kingslayer behind his back. John found it hard to look away from him. This is what a king should look like, he thought to himself as the man passed. So for John, the king should be handsome, should look the part, even if his, even if Jamie's actions, actual actions as a kingslayer and future attempted child murder don't reflect the noble king ideal. Fast forward to his storm of swords, and John is still making the same mistake of having a surface level appraisal of what a king should look like. What John is going to learn from uh, from from Mance is how a king should act like, and that is crucial to his overall arc, bending towards becoming king of the north, and of course probably taking off his crown to save the children. So we'll find out hopefully in the Winds of Winter next week. But there's a but here's a subtle brilliance of pairing this chapter right behind Sansa's first chapter in the Storm of Swords. In Sansa 1, Sansa has learned mistrust in King's Landing, that smiles conceal daggers, that beautiful people can be fucking evil. How much farther along is Sansa in her character growth than John here? 
well, in my opinion, controversially speaking, quite a lot. Now, certainly John's experiences have not quite matched Sansa. She's had a whole lot of brutal, evil training, if you want to call it that, that has spurred on these revelations. But John's mind is still in the realm of fantasy, of in fairy tales, of the songs and stories about handsome, chivalrous kings and knights and ladies and maidens and all that. Like Sansa, though, John is going to have to put aside these childish things. Or, in John's storyline, kill the boy and let the man be born. In order to do that, he has to make mistakes and realize his assumptions. George is calling attention to the unconscious assumptions we make as audience members. So we have to wise up along with Jon Snow when we get the sudden reversal of who's in charge in the room. The truth is literally behind Jon, over his shoulder like we're going to look and see someone. The most unassuming man in the room. The one Jon immediately treated as invisible. He finishes singing, stands, and upends everything with a dual statement of identity. I'm Mance Raider, and you're Ned Stark's bastard. No sooner have we recovered from the realization that this guy is Mance, then we're blindsided with him knowing who John is. John came here to play a role. He never expected that instead he'd be confronted with himself. Mance has immediately disarmed him. Names have power. Declarations of self. It goes hand in hand with Mance's identity as Bard King, first and foremost a storyteller. He's almost like an avatar for the author. I'm here to tell you as a character who you are. I'm going to give you your lines, give you your motivation. That's kind of how Mance talks. John killed Corrin Halfhand to get here, yet was following his orders in doing so, committing himself to duty while appearing to abandon it entirely. As Mance says, Corrin was both friend and enemy to him. So should he welcome John or curse him? There are no easy answers to that kind of question, and we're always at the mercy of perspective. Mance knows all about the dualities John struggles with, so John answers honestly, both, you should welcome me and curse me. There is no resolving the human heart in conflict with itself. The other is a stranger, yet a reflection of our own self. And that's John too. Snow and Stark. Northmen and Watchmen and now Wildling. He's playing a role. Hell, he's playing multiple roles at once. It's a good answer, he gives, that you should both welcome me and curse me. That pleases Mance and Torment, John's new dads. It works because John isn't trying to pander to them, and they can tell. After all, Mance is a different kind of king than the ones John knows, and the ones we know, the ones who might like being pandered to, the Baratheons, the Lannisters, the Targaryens, etc. Mance doesn't look like them any more than he looks like Stir or Tormund. He looks instead like Davos Seaworth, totally ordinary. A forgettable face, an average build, not a piece of jewelry to be seen. All of which only helps him, because it means he can blend in, hiding in plain sight. Mance Raider is a shapeshifter. Right from the start, he's never who you're expecting him to be. He's always one step ahead of you. He is a master swordsman, but he doesn't look like one, just as Olena seems frail on the outside before she shows you the thorns. Mance is plain and unadorned. That doesn't necessarily mean he's honest. Mance believes in the bard's truth, the self-image you make on your own. That's why George emphasizes everyone's titles, these external identities. Stir is a Magnar of Fen, says Mance, and Magnar means lord. Later we'll learn that Stir rules with an iron fist, just like any of the tin pot tyrants south of the wall where they don't believe in freedom. Mance further complicates things by introducing Dala as a queen, or rather somewhat like a queen, treat her like you would treat a queen, he says. Val is later called a princess by Stannis' men. That's not quite right, 
but she still has some position here or she wouldn't be in the tent. And to add on, in in Norse and Danish dialects, uh, Jarl or Jarl can be can mean chieftain. So by normal Westerosi standards of marrying a princess, Jarl would then be a lord. So as with Craster, we're seeing a real uh, cultural and ideological diversity to the wildlings. Freedom means different things to different people. Ormond also insists on his titles, but the tone is again the opposite. Maybe Thunderfist or Father of Hosts would sound impressive on their own, but when you string them together with Mead King and Breaker of Ice, it sounds like a joke. Torment, I get the sense, is making fun of titles. He's making fun of men like Stir. And I love Tormund as a character, every bit as much as Mance. We'll spend more time with Tormund in John 2, but he's already a delight in this chapter. He's a sloppy mess, and he doesn't care because he doesn't have to. Tormund has, a, he has this ragged heart of gold that never quite covers up how dangerous he is. Maybe George kind of agreed with us that John's chapters up to now were a little too solemn. Enter Tormund, who is allergic to self-seriousness. The most telling of Tormund's many titles is Paul Talker. In other words, he's a bullshitter, someone who exaggerates as easily as he breathes. Tormund is similar to Mance in that he's out for a good time in life, right? He wants to breathe the free air and reap the rewards of man's natural state. But Mance, like, Mance feels the need to, like, conceptualize all that and, like, turn it into a graduate thesis about freedom. He's, he's George's favorite kind of character, the one you see crop up elsewhere in his work, especially Fever Dream. The Byronic poet and dreamer, hopelessly romantic. Mance is, you know, he's kind of pretentious, and Tormund really, he cuts through that so effectively. I, yeah, you're right about that. I think, you know, if Mance is another spin on Joshua York, doesn't Tormund kind of resemble Abner Marsh a bit and how much he loves food and is this enormous wide dude with a huge appetite? Abner, though, is a bit more self-serious than Tormund, and, and taller, too, for that matter. But I think the appearance and personality match somewhat. And stir, stir in the mix. You know, it's hard not to think that these three as archetypal characters that George loves in his stories. These wildling men are a study of contrast, the sweet with the bitter, the sophisticated with the body uncle. On top of that, Mance has managed to cobble together an effective political coalition with these wildlings at the helm. And you know who else had put together an effective political coalition and used threats and actual violence to win over his subordinates? Rob Stark. Rob Stark's coalition Royal Lords be met back in the Game of Thrones reads as having a similar dynamic to the wildling political leaders here. Tormund has the warm, gruff demeanor of a northern lord, a sort of great John Umber type figure. Stir has a cold absolutism, a better Bruce Bolton, I guess you can't get any worse, a more loyal Bruce Bolton at least. And Dala and Val almost work as Mage and Daisy Mormont figures mm -hmm. in that they're in the tent with Mance, and though they don't participate in the politics for the moment, they will soon enough, as we'll find out in A Storm of Swords. And Mance is not only a Joshua York pale king figure, he's got a bit of Rob Stark in him as well, centering himself between the warm and the friendly and the cold and the cunning. I guess ultimately what I'm saying, or rather the question that I'm about to ask, Emmett, is that if you're Mance, can I be Tormund? And Mike, I guess you could be Stir if you want to be a character in this tent here with us. I'll, I'll take it. There's worse options. And he's a minor character. At least he lasts longer than Jarl. I don't have to become a Christmas tree ornament. I can just be instantly buried. <laughs> right over in a heartbeat. You could, you could definitely do worse. And yeah, I mean, you know, talking about Mance as, as kind of uh, being kind of more highfalutin and pretentious than his contemporaries, that's not to say he has his head in the clouds. He's a keen observer of the human condition and knows how to read individuals as well. That's who John has to be to make it through this conversation. 
First, Mance gathers intelligence on the Night's Watch numbers from Rattleshire, showing his quick, decisive leadership before he zeroes in on John himself. There were only five of you? John says Corrin was worth 20 men, using the romantic, glorious imagery Mance himself manipulates so well. And it still works on him, which is what I love about Mance. Even as he recognizes the fantasy of Corrin as a fantasy, it still makes Mance miss him. still makes Mance go, ah, I wish he was worth 20 men. Then Mance snaps back to reality. Wait, what were you doing with Shadow Tower men at all? John has his lie already. George chose not to show him thinking about it, so we have to keep up with John now as he gets smarter. John's story checks out that he was sent to Corrin for seasoning, because, you know, he is still kind of callow and half-trained, so, you know, story checks out there. John is learning to lean into his vulnerabilities. Like Tyrion said, make them your armor. John can tell the truth about their mission, or responding to empty wildling villages. And more than that, as Mance hints, that we weren't the only one who vanished, who have been vanishing. The rangers have been vanishing as well, and the White Walkers are responsible. Speaking of them, Mance and Tormund take it as a given that it was Craster who told the Night's Watch that they were up in the Frostfangs. Mance, like Olena, Queen of Thorns, knows how valuable information is. He knows how to weaponize it. So he lays a little trap for John, feigning ignorance of their source, asking, oh, who told you we were up here, trying to test him? It's a delicate duel before Tormund blunders right into the middle of it by giving away that it was Craster. And so Mance loses the opportunity to see what John would have said. That right there, Tormund says, is why Mance is the king. Stir might fit the image better with his imposing frame and lordly title. Tormund claims that he can outfight, outdrink, outsing, and outfuck Mance, which, you know, citation needed. But none of that mattered in the end, because Mance has cunning. As far as Tormund is concerned, Mance picked that up at the wall, because the crow is a tricksy bird. And that's Mance in a nutshell, the tricksy bird, always with a message that you don't expect that will pull the rug out from underneath you. So while the scene where Tormund steps in is a great piece of dialogue, I've always wondered what John would have actually said here if Tormund hadn't just blundered his way into fucking up Mance's plan. The interesting thing is that we don't actually get John's interior thoughts here. But if we think back to A Clash of Kings, John really didn't like Craster and grew to hate him, rightfully so, because of his, of course, the rapes of his daughters and the sacrifice of his male children to the, the cold. But would John's loyalty to the Night's Watch and his memory of Elsie Mormont's thoughts about Craster influence him? It would be an ill day for us if Craster died, Mormont said. Your uncle could tell you of the times Craster's keep made the difference between life and death for our rangers. Back in Clash, Mormont had told John that the Night's Watch had other wars to fight that were more important than setting the world around Craster's rights. And John had agreed, thinking that he had to remember that. But what would be John's response now? Would he value the lives of his fellow Night's Watchmen ranging far to the north and in need of a sanctuary during their rangings, a sanctuary such as Craster's Keep? Or would he think, fuck, Mance, it was Craster, man. Also, fuck that guy. That John doesn't give an explicit answer here in word or thought leads me to think that the part that part of John's arc in A Storm of Swords, and especially A Dance with Dragons, is the sort of answer to that question about whether it's more important to save individual innocence or the collective whole. And alongside Stur and Tormund, uh, Mance, and also George, introduces uh, Dala, the wife of Mance Vader, who must be treated as any queen, as he states. And it's pretty clear when she comes to the story that she she's very well treated by Mance. Uh, she's introduced sitting by the brazier, and 
welcomed in his work council, even by someone like Stir, who's an Iron Fist ruler. And she is very welcoming to John and Wise, as we'll see come in, as we'll see come into play later in this book. But there's not much given to her character, although we can see how her standing with the War Council is much different than the Southern Small Council. And alongside Doll comes Val, her beautiful sister, who will graduate from being a minor character to a secondary character coming Dance with Dragons. I'm very proud. <laughs> like like Egret, Val is shown to have her own freedom and is not tied down. Jarl is referred to by Mansa as her latest pet to establish this. Oh, and Jarl is also here. Good for him. Val's freedoms and limitations will come to a head in Dance, where she is sent out to find Torment and Solis seeks to force a marriage. In the end, uh, Dala is the only minor character to remain in Mansa's tent, to listen and provide wisdom if it were needed, which by the book, by the end of the book, it will be. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Dala's going to look wiser and wiser as we go through the series, but little she says comes back very importantly. Those minor but, characters. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> all important. So Mance kicks everybody else out. Torben says, what, me? And Mance goes, yeah, no, especially you. Torben doesn't get mad, of course. He just goes, har, and steals some chickens, his normal routine. And John is left alone to dance with the Wildling King. In a dialogue scene just as dense as the one between Sansa and Olenna in the previous chapter. If anything, even more so, because John comes in knowing he's going to have to lie his ass off, whereas Sansa is suddenly forced into it. So in this scene, both characters have a conscious strategy of deception, turning this conversation into a chess match from the POV of the less experienced player. It touches on so much, this conversation, but so much still stays, still stays hidden. The subject of this conversation is supposed to be, who is Jon Snow? But what it actually ends up being is, who is Mance Raider? They might be strangers on the surface, but it turns out they have a lot in common. Mirror images across a cultural divide. Tormund was right, Man says, even as he breaks bread. The crow is a tricksy bird. We're both crows, but that means we're both tricksters. So can we trust each other or not? John keeps stumbling over titles, referring to Man says, Your Grace. Not a title you get from free folk, Man says. Unlike Davos, they're not willing to treat their kings like gods. So instead, Mance and John must spar as equals, albeit with a threat of violence for the wrong answer. Mance comes not with orders for John, but with a story. He doesn't tell it to John, but makes him puzzle it out. It's another test. We're not strangers, actually. We're friends. I've seen you before, twice in fact. John figures the first time out quickly, when Mance was in the watch. They share this lovely memory of him helping John and Rob with some snow-related hijinks, dumping some snow on one of the guardsmen. It's, it's a memory of this kind of innocent warmth from John's childhood. It's a very clever move on Mance's part. Again, he's disarming John with intimacy. Like, I, I know your name, and now I know your home. I know your family. The very home and family that John has given up. Now twice over by seemingly joining Mance, but suddenly he's being brought up against those things again. Yeah, and that little rejoinder that this was a valid he kept also does subtle work for John here, too. He's having a... Mance is having a much more lighthearted take on Jamie's vows and vows. They make you swear and swear and swear. It's kind of like Mance is asking, where do you prioritize your vows, John? Look at where I prioritize my vows. Mance kept his vow with John not to tell him because he knew that his vow of friendship with the boy was good. But the vows you have to take as a brother of Night's Watch, those are vows that Mance couldn't keep for reasons he's about to explain. It's almost like Mance is asking John here, are you of a similar mind as me, John? 
are you, where do you place your value in vows and where do you place your value in values in itself? How do you prioritize mm -hmm. them? Mance is asking, uh, maybe we met in previous lives. You know, when we wore different masks, we knew each other. And we were friends then. Maybe we can be again. Who are we now? Well, Mance knows a little bit about that, too. Turns out the second time he saw John was when Robert visited Winterfell in Book 1. This is a marvelous retcon, laid out with logistical detail. We can now go back and imagine that entire court drama at the beginning of the story at Winterfell playing out through Mance's eyes, the amused eyes of their enemy hiding in plain sight. Everyone the king beyond the wall would have to deal with when he came south was under one roof for his inspection. Robert, Ned, Benjamin, the Lannisters. And you broke bread with me. And killing me would have been sacrilege after that. So how can I truly be your enemy? We're already brothers. We're already friends before you even knew it. This is central to Mance's argument about the wildlings and humanity as a whole. Our hierarchies are bullshit, especially in the face of the apocalypse. Even before the others showed up, though, the borders between them were constructed socially, as well as physically, a wall in your mind. The notion that your identity is determined by birth, that Jon Snow is a bastard and therefore bad, for example, is not only cruel, it's absurd. In reality, there's commerce all the time between the Wildlings and the Watch. That's how Mance heard that his fellow King Robert was on his way. As for the Wall itself, it's made to stop an army, not one determined and clever man. Mance swooped into Winterfell with his harp in hand, and Jon realizes he's heard this story before. This is Bale the Bard. Yes and no, Mance says. <laughs> I was inspired by it, but I never stole a Stark daughter. An archetype changes, like the seasons, to show us the impact of different choices made along the way. Mance is too self-aware to ever be like <laughs> Bale the Bard, who lived the songs he wrote. Mance says he is doomed only to sing songs of better men. And this is, a, this is a new wrinkle to his character, adds some complexity. Mance is tremendously inspirational, but he campaigns under a shadow of grief and doubt. A certainty that he is not up to the immense task before him, one he can only accomplish if he acts throughout like it's inevitable. Mance is a badass who understands that being a badass doesn't save you in the end. It doesn't deliver you from death, as represented by the others. Micah pointed that out earlier. Mance knows that there is nothing behind the mask. The soul isn't inviolate, just some, you know, some way that you are staying the same forever. Who you are is just the accumulation of all the actions and reactions, all the masks you wear in your life. I think that that's brilliantly said, because underneath the badassery, charm, and cunning, Mansfair just wants to live another day. But what makes him a hero is that he's not content to simply live himself another day south of the wall. Because, as we know, Mance Raider could have kept on going south, staying safe behind the wall, living the life of a bard in the Seven Kingdoms. Yet what makes him heroic is that he turned back north. He crossed the wall yet again. Why? Because he wanted to not just save himself, but all of the wildlings trapped north of the wall facing the existential threat of an annihilation so terrible that the bodies of the slain become thralls to the others. For Mance, as we'll find out towards the end of A Storm of Swords, his sole purpose in climbing the wall to go back north was to save his people and get them south of the wall, for all of them to enjoy the comforts and experiences that he had at Robert's Feast, uh, metaphorically speaking. This is why Mance will claim that he won't blow the Horn of Winter unless he's forced to, because that will allow the others to come south of the wall. 
Of course, Mance is almost certainly bluffing as the horn he shows John at the end of his arc is not the true horn. But even if Mance Raider had the horn, I'm not convinced that he would blow it. But we'll get to all that later in A Storm of Swords. It's a conversation for John 10 from A Storm of Swords. Mance's mission to safeguard the Wildlings will end up being some of what John will actually try to mirror as LC of the Night's Watch in A Dance with Dragons and getting Tormund's band south, reaching out to the Weeper's band and sending Cotter Pike and his ships to Hardhome to bring Mother Mole and her group back to Eastwatch. But there is a factor which will separate John's crusade from Mance's, in that Mance believes that the others cannot be defeated, that the only way to win mm. is to actually be south of a hinge of the world separating the others from humanity. John will come to believe that the others have to be defeated in some way. Part of me has this notion, it might be weird, part of me has this notion that Jon Snow grew up hearing old Nan stories of the Long Night and the last hero when he was the same age as Bran, if you remember from... Brand four from a Game of Thrones brand. Here's the story from old Nan about the last hero and how the children of the forest saved him and everything like that. It's a brilliant type of world building and storytelling, which George integrates into the story. And I think maybe John had the same experience as Bran at that age. Maybe also Mance Raider heard those tales too, but Mance is much older than John, pointedly in this chapter reminding John that Mance Raider was a ranger when John was still in utero. Perhaps Mance Raider's skepticism that the others can be beaten is sourced to all of it to that of a disappointed idealist, a singer who knew the old songs and then saw the reality of the cold hand of death stealing life and enslaving it. And perhaps when we get to the winds of winter in this and dream of spring, though, John's idealism and romanticism, his belief in the last hero and the defeat of the others will win the day. I think. Maybe. We'll see. But I'm kind of far <laughs> really far afield of where this chapter is. For now, John has some questions to answer. Or wait. Is it Mance's turn in the question game? I, I, I forget. Keeps going back and forth. Mance is curious. You know, this is what time has made of me. What has time made of John? What led him to turn his cloak? It's a hard question to answer, so John doesn't. He turns it around instead. Well, why are you here, Mance? Why did you turn your cloak? It's a smart move, not only because it buys John time, but because it reveals his insight into Mance. The wildling king likes to hear himself talk, so let him talk. Let Mance build his own legend, which will let John know what kind of man he is, which will allow him to craft something that Mance will believe. The myth of a man, like any story, is a give-and-take process, created by the audience as much as the storyteller. So Mance asks, well, what have you heard? What stories has John heard about Mance's desertion? Some say it was for a crown, but as Mance points out, he's not wearing one. This isn't a vanity project. No visible signs of ambition are really required. None of the other explanations that John has heard add up either. Was it wildling blood? Well, that's first men blood, same as the Starks. Was it for a woman? Mance says he met Dalla on his return from Winterfell. And anyway, there are active watchmen who sleep around way more than he ever did. <laughs> Mance is showing John how the borders between their peoples don't work the way he thought. It's not about background, because we actually have that in common. We you know, worship the same gods and all that. It's not about sex, either, because people will always break the rules in order to fuck. So what is it about? Why did Mance leave? And what is it the Watch and Wildlings are fighting over, exactly? As far as Mance is concerned, it's about his cloak. A torn and tattered Night's Watchman cloak. Mance was attacked by a shadow cat while on patrol. His body was torn up as much as his cloak, and a wildling woman saved his life. 
Mance implies they also had sex, like when he says a kiss is not a crime, wink, wink. And he, uh, he implies that the gift of red silk was a romantic gesture, as well as a, a practical move on her part to, to sew up the, uh, the cloak. Who knows if that's actually true? Mance is a bullshitter every bit as much as Tormund, <laughs> as yeah, we'll see regarding the Horn of Winter, like you said. But the point is that Mance's cloak, as it stands, torn and tattered with those red silk uh, uh, parts covering up the rips, it represents the marks of lived experience. Being a person, going through setbacks, finding unexpected connections that change you. This cloak is Mance's identity. It's who he is. And when he went back to the Shadow Tower, they told him to burn it. So he could get back to wearing a pure, perfect black shroud to die in someday. All at once, Mance realized that the Night's Watch is not a noble calling. It's a prison. One that asks you to purge yourself of individuality. And that's what Mance is at war with. Not Westeros itself, the Seven Kingdoms slumbering south of the Wall. Mance is at war with institutionalization, with the bureaucratic rationalization of people with no thought to their own desires. He is at war with what happened to him, because he sees it broadly writ across the land. And I think he's 100% right. Mance is such a powerful character because he's a classical archetype undergirded by a direct political appeal to modern readers, who are inclined to root for the rebel with their own style. This is basically everything we want Jon Snow to be. But by giving himself away so completely, Mance allows Jon to turn the tables on him. And that's the great stinger at the end of this chapter, the student learning from the master and surpassing him. Jon has a glimpse into Mance's soul now, and understands there is one motivation he can offer that will make sense. I am a bastard. You saw me there in Winterfell. You saw me sitting below everyone. That's why I'm here. That's why I turned my cloak. And this is such a complex moment for Jon's character because he is realizing that even his old identity is another role he can play now. He can perform as the sullen bastard of Winterfell who wants a place at the Lord's table. And while that image was an omnipresent threat for Catelyn, Jon can use it to spin himself as a romantic outsider to Mance. Mance has been saying, I'm just like you throughout this conversation. We have the, this, the, we have gods in common. We have ancestry in common. We like the same songs. We all like women. I'm just like you. Now John turns that around. I'm just like you. I, as a bastard, am uniquely positioned to understand your argument. My chains have chafed me and left me raw, ready to remake myself as something new. And while this is technically a lie, it kind of becomes true by virtue of John saying it. This is who I have to be now. I will no longer be that bastard. Exactly the process Mance went through. And it's why he welcomes John to his new identity. It reminds me of what Sandor said to Sansa about King's Landing. They're all liars here, all of them better than you. Well, John is learning how to lie. Unfortunately, it's, he's also learning how to lie to himself, which we'll see a lot more <laughs> of in later John chapters. Yeah, and while Mance has already gone through the identity process that John is currently going through, it's not only John that he's gone through, but Sansa and Arya, Bran, Theon, Brienne, Asha, and so many others as well. It's quite a testament to George's skill here how he can approach very similar arcs of identity through so many pathways. And here we see one such pathway's endpoint could be in the form of Mance Raider. That's a great point, man. I think, you know, I I love 
the way this chapter concludes because it really focuses the entirety of John's story with the Wildlings and his story back with the Night's Watch because it's who are you, Jon Snow? Deep down, are you still the sullen boy who's pissed off at being treated like a bastard? Now, I think one of the angles about this chapter, which is really interesting, is that the best lies are sprinkled with truth because we're going to find out later in Storm, John is still pissed that he was treated like a bastard at Winterfell. He's pissed enough that he very nearly takes up Stannis' offer of legitimization and worship of Winterfell after he remembers the story of Rob telling him as a boy that Catelyn said that bastards cannot inherit. Even by his penultimate chapter in A Dance of Dragons, John 12, John is weeping in his dream as he kills his Stark brothers and his brothers in the Night's Watch, screaming that, I am the Lord of Winterfell! I mean, that's heavy shit, but that's Jon Snow at his core, still hurting over his mistreatment at, at Winterfell. What I wonder is whether beyond the words, John's body language maybe spoke louder than his words to Mance Raider, because George lets John do talking here, and we don't get any indication of John's body language, save for John leaning forward for emphasis. And I think that act, along with John's probably very obviously hurt, sad boy expression, one, Mance is partial, but as we're going to find out in later John chapters, not full trust. But ultimately, John will turn his cloak black again, or back again, both at the same time, siding with his brothers over the wildlings. Or will he? Stay tuned, I guess. Now, before I wrap up, I just want to say one thing about the Throne Show and how they adapted this scene for season three. I promise, just one thing. While I absolutely love how George closes this chapter, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that maybe the way that the Throne Show did it is maybe better, maybe. I won't go into the full scene, but within Game of Thrones continuity, it works marvelously as John uses the fact that he witnessed a White Walker taking a baby boy at Craster's Keep to convince Mance about why he wants to join them. Because it wasn't just that John witnessed the walkers take the child, something which didn't happen in A Clash of Kings. John only, John only heard about it from a story that Gilly tells him. It was that Elsie Mormont told him that he already knew. And John's response in season three is really, really good. Thousands of years ago, the first men battled the White Walkers and defeated them. I want to fight for the side that fights for the living. Now, what I love about this conversation, about how this conversation unfolded in the throne show, was that it was a lie sprinkled with a lot of truth. Because Jon Snow's desire is to be the hero, to fight the White Walkers, and he wants to fight for the side that fights for the living, which is just classic archetypal hero shit. Remember, you know, Kit Harrington for all of the shit that he gets for his acting ability, which I think is a little very overstated, really did a great line read for, for that scene. And it was very convincing. Good job, Kit. And thank you for being one of our patrons. I'm kidding. Maybe. Possibly. So it is two different canons for a scene, and you can prefer one or the other or like them both similarly. But And that's the kind of way that I choose to look at these two different scenes. I know that's probably not the most thrilling way to end the depth part of this episode, but I still like it all the same. So, uh, shifting into foreshadowing and groundwork for this chapter, what do, what do you got for us, Micah? What does this chapter set up? Well, John's got a line in the beginning of the chapter that sort that goes with "dead, all dead but me, and I am dead to the world." Well, John dies, everybody. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> what? <laughs> but this what? I know he gets stabbed a few times, four allegedly. But this could also be groundwork for his endgame. If, like in the Bat Show, he does go north in the end, he would go north dead to the world after betraying a queen. Mm. Yeah. Yep, those, those the cycles of kind of exile and return, I think, are pretty strong with John's character and building up to the ultimate pattern of that probably towards the end. 
So I was saying earlier, Torben has his list of titles in this chapter, and John will follow up on those titles in his next chapter. He's especially curious about Hornblower, because he thinks that might be connected to the Horn of Winter, but Torben doesn't care about that, so he just tells him all about being Giant's Babe and Husband to Bears and all that other fun stuff. Again, good times with Torben, uh, next John chapter. Uh, Torben says that Craster should be made shorter by a head, which doesn't exactly happen as Craster ends up getting stabbed by mutinous Night, Night's Watchman. But George is reminding us that Craster... Craster's days are numbered in a storm of swords. Since that, I say good riddance. And uh, speaking of things going wrong around the dinner table, Mance emphasizes in this chapter how sacred guest right is. Ned couldn't have even executed me because guest right is so important. Not really, you know, a, an important detail for that backstory. I think it's there just so the reader has guest right being sacred in mind as we steam toward the Red Wedding when it gets taken apart. Lots of people die in this book. That's true. That's a storm of swords for you. Yeah, that's that is the that is the uh, the book flap cover or the description of it, and then finally we get Mance's cloak as foreshadowing for evil Mance Raider, aka the Tattered Prince in a Dance with Dragons. And recall how Mance was able to go incognito at Winterfell. Maybe he wasn't wearing his red and black cloak when he went to Winterfell. Not really made clear in the text itself, but I think it's a possibility. And re- also recall what Tatters tells Quentin that he was an ordinary looking old man when he took off his tattered cloak. Kind of similar to Mance Raider, who has a kind of ordinary appearance, save for that wonderful cloak threaded with red silk. The tattered and twisty, what a rogue I am, as Tatters says, which could also be a line out of Mance's mouth. Those 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 trickster god characters, George has a lot of fun with those. Brought up Thomas Evans earlier. He's a, he's a variation on that archetype, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. So, take us into our theory and discussion portions for the episode. Obviously, we have to talk about the most factually correct, objectively true theory in the history of A Song of Ice and Fire. A lot of the evidence for it comes from this chapter, and I'm referring, of course, to the fact that man's radar is Rhaegar Targaryen. Good. Nothing? Yeah, Nothing? Good. Bueller? Yeah. Crickets? Good. Good. I'm, I'm Logically, all for it. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Tell me why I'm wrong, Jeff. Why is man's radar not Rhaegar Targaryen? Well, because Rhaegar is dead. Thanks. Details, I... baby. Details. No, I... I, I... With apologies to our, our small council patron, patron, Dent, George was asked in 2008, what happened to Rhaegar's body? George R. Martin's response, Rhaegar was cremated, as is traditional for fallen Targaryens. Now, I know that there is a lot of people in the fandom who think that Rhaegar is Mance Radar, Radar, Raider. But at the same time, I think it's interesting not to just look at Mance Raider as Rhaegar Targaryen, because what I think George does in this chapter and throughout the times we meet Mance Raider is do something more subtle and interesting with the character in that he is calling attention to the different parallels and storytelling that George, that he loves to embed in his stories. And that's what he loves specifically is how Mance Raider not doesn't exactly mirror Rhaegar Targaryen, but has enough similarities and characteristics that we're supposed to be reminded of of uh of, of Rhaegar Targaryen. And I think too, we talked about you know John having these father figures in the story of a song of Song of Ice and Fire. And one father figure that we see in The Storm of Swords happens to be Mance Raider, who is kind of subtly showing John's true father in a sense. Almost like his the father figure, the archetypal father figure character is being reflected in the fact that Mance Raider is uh, the fact that Rhaegar Targaryen is, is Jon Snow's actual father, as we're going to find out, uh, most likely in the Winds of Winter. To run through the Mance Rhaegar stuff just real quick, the th- things that people ring up about it, there's the fact that they're both singers. Rhaegar's harp is brought up. Mance has that, that cloak with Targaryen colors. 
He sings about uh, having the Dornishman's wife. And of course, uh, Rhaegar was married to Elia Martell from Dorne. And uh, people have compared Corn Halfhand to Arthur Dane. This theory goes uh, kind of, uh, you know, spider webs from there. But yeah, I don't, it's one of those cases like the Dario and, and Euron stuff where I think people maybe make it overly literal when I think it said, yeah, George is suggesting character parallels. And that, uh, you know, John did not expect to meet someone beyond the wall who knew him, who knew his name. And John did not know what kind of person Mance Raider was going to be. And along the same lines, John doesn't know who his real father is. So it's these these mysteries that that point at yourself, and you know, a, a classic hero's journey stuff, where you know what you think is the enemy or it's just a stranger, the other turns out to be you, a version of you, or something connected to your heritage. And uh, I do think John, I think George also just likes that archetype and enjoys kind of like yeah, that Byronic poetic dreamer that that that, that crops up that crops up in these stories. But I also yeah, I think in in regards to John himself, I think what's what's interesting is you, you have. Uh, these these kind of commonalities between Mance and John coming up in this chapter, and the more that will be explored later in Storm of Swords. And so, and Mance of course survives into a dance with dragons. And so, you know, you, you kind of start to wonder what uh, what the the point of Mance as a character is. If his cause is not going to be super successful, but he's still going to be around, why is George keep him around? And part of it, I think, is to reflect this aspect of John and who John might be. Because as as Micah brought up earlier, there's the end point of John in the show where he, he rides off north of the wall in exile again. But, you know, obviously as a, as a, uh, you know, as Arthur Dane and, and, and Ned say, now it begins and now it ends. And the story keeps going round and round again. So John's life doesn't end there. And part of me wonders what we're looking at with Mance might be, this is who John will be if he ever comes back. If he ever comes back south of the wall, if he ever comes leading an army of, of wildlings on his own to, you know, to take his own kingdom or to just, to just cross into the south. Mance is kind of who he would be. This this former ranger who was broken by passion and romance and things not being the way he thought they were going to be. And I, uh, yeah, it's it's like you know, it's not that far from from Luke seeing a dark reflection of himself in Darth Vader. I think this is all part of the the, the protagonist forming themselves out of their new selves and identities. Here's someone who struggled with that all his life. Here's a a potential option for you to be like and. As we were saying, it stands in such contrast to the, the the people of the Night's Watch themselves. Now John is realizing, oh, that's maybe that's not the kind of man I actually am. And I think of all his father figures at the end of the story, I'm sure he's going to look to Ned a lot too, but Mance might be the person John ends up being. Yeah, I mean, like, I think, you know, too, you have uh, the story that Mance Reader tells about meeting a woman on the way back up to the wall and, of course, having most likely having sex with the uh, the healer's daughter in in the village north of the wall. And I do think it's interesting that we see Val here and we are introduced to the character of Val in the story. And John immediately notes how pretty that she, mm. that she is. And, mm-hmm. First you know, uh, yeah, exactly. And, you know, Val is one of those characters, I think, uh, embodies something we see a lot in the later books in A Song of Ice and Fire, the kind of ascending extra role mm. where like she she doesn't have a lot to just she has a couple lines in A Storm of Swords and a couple appearances. But it seems like between Storm and A Dance with Dragons, George really decided that he wanted to develop, to develop this character and develop this kind of mutual affection and love interest between Val and John mm-hmm. in a similar way that he has with Mance Raider, who, of course, you know, what was Val is, is Dallas' sister, of course. So it would kind of make sense that, that she might be one of the reasons why John would end up going north. It wouldn't be a total bitter ending for John to go north of the wall if he has Val waiting for him at, at the end of all things. So I do hope that Val survives in the long term. And, and I do yeah. hope that's 
one of the endpoints for John is him being able to be with the woman that he loves in the same way that Mance is able to be with the woman that, that, that he loves and is able to set aside his black cloak in favor of one that is threaded with red, which of course could symbolize love and, and life and all the different ways that we, uh, we use, we use the color of red in our, our storytelling. Yeah, no, that's a great point there. Yeah. That, that's what the red represents too, is that, that love and loss, which is something John will be dealing with too. Oh Yeah. So I think that is going to wrap us up for this analysis of A Storm of Swords, John 1. As always, thank you so much for listening and thank you to all of you who have been watching the live cast with us. We appreciate all of your eyes and ears. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is brendabeefish.substack.com. And Micah, where can we find you online? Well, I am on Twitter at Micah underscore of Clark. And I am sometimes on the Planetos podcast. We've been kind of on hiatus for a while this year. But uh, there might be talks in that coming back since the House of the Dragon TV show is coming next year. And we love to talk about those minor characters and houses in that, in that podcast. So lots of material to come in. Awesome. So yeah, yeah. Uh, you'll be able to find Planetos podcast on Podbean, Podbean, SoundCloud, iTunes, and all those other areas. Uh, so look out for that. And yeah, that's basically where I'm at right now. Well, thanks so much that's for awesome. coming on. We had a great time. We were, we were looking Oh, yeah, this was excellent. I loved it. Thank great. you guys for having me. Of course, anytime. Mm-hmm. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Switchers. The Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Maribel, the Shoeless Sage. Sister Winter, Lady Dulcewood. Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Sir Way, of course. Matt Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjica, Alchemist of Setsan Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and the Morgan, Tid the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon Mariful Head Affair, Lady Silverwing, Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clegg, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Donatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frost Fangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planetos Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, James of House Keen, Lord of the Forest City, Admiral of the Cayahuga, and Warden of the Western Reserve, Lady Ken of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, and Sir Andrew of H-Town. Thank you so much, as always, to our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you folks so much for your support every single month. It means the world to us. So, join us next week for A Storm of Swords, Daenerys 1, in which Daenerys Targaryen wants to take her besties on vacation to a place called Slaver's Bay. Yay! Sand, sun, surf, slaves. Yeah, yay! This, this is sounding like a terrible vacation. Why would you take us there, Danny? Well, it's Dora Mormont, really. Never go on vacation with Dora Mormont. Never, <laughs> never, go, to sec- never go to a second location with Dora Mormont. <laughs> 
always always a bad idea, as we'll find out. Oh, it's going to be so much fun to actually get back with Daenerys Targaryen in this story. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all of you who have watched our live stream. Thank you to our patrons for supporting us. And finally, thanks most of all to Micah for joining us as a guest for this episode. And we see you next week for A Storm of Swords, Daenerys 1. <laughs> <laughs>